Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello. I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinematic Podcast. You know, the last few weeks in British politics have really brought home the true meaning of that old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. It's, it's really a very interesting time in Britain at the moment. I'm not even going to try and explain the details. You'll know what I'm talking about if you're here. But the time of writing, it's not clear when Parliament is going to sit again. It's not clear whether Britain has, has anything one might term a government or whether the members of that government may have been lying to the Queen, which is, a, you know, we're, we're a reasonably liberal monarchical state these days, but that's still considered a little bit of a no-no. So, so the whole thing's stuffed. So we're, we're not even going to think about any of that this week. This podcast is going to be by way of distraction. We're going to take the long-term view. In fact, we're going to take the very long-term view. I'm going to speak to an archaeology professor, Monica Smith, about her new book, which looks at uh, 6,000 years of urban history and talks about where cities came from in the first place. Just a quick note before we do that, though. We have looked at some of these some of these subjects before, all the way back in episode 19, which is almost exactly three years ago now. I've been doing this quite a long time now, I think. Anyway, in an episode called How It All Began, uh, I spoke to a US podcaster called Rob Monaco, who runs the History of the World podcast, to talk about the very earliest cities. That's If you're interested in, in the topic of this conversation, then that's, that's worth checking out too. It's kind of a companion episode to this one you know i just like nudging people towards we've got quite a big archive now so it's nice to kind of remind everyone that there's 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 all sorts of glories back there if you want to check it out especially on the weeks where we don't go around to putting something out so why not why not check it out and go and listen to my conversation with rob but do not do that yet because first of all i'm going to talk about a new book my name is monica smith i'm a professor of anthropology and also in the institute of environment and sustainability at the university of california los angeles and i'm an archaeologist by trade but my perspective on cities is one that goes right up into the present and into the future and i'm very glad to be in london today and you're the author of a book with a, with a fairly grand title which is cities the first six thousand years which, you know, in 2019 is quite encouraging because it does imply there might be more thousands of years ahead of us, which is not always easy to feel. What, what was it that inspired you to, to write this particular book? Well, you know, academics often engage in subjects with which they have a particular interest or passion. And as an archaeologist, I've simultaneously lived in modern cities while excavating ancient ones. 
And it has been amazing to me over time that regardless of where I've been working or living, that these cities all look the same, that you have the same kinds of monumental architecture, you have open public spaces, you've got some large, broad avenues, you've got some small alleys, you've got places where wealthy people live and not so wealthy people live, you've got marketplaces, you've got goods coming in from the countryside. And regardless of whether it's in the past or the present, those same conditions seem to provide the spatial realities for urban life. So is it that cities of today are in some ways trying to solve the same sorts of challenges that the cities of, you know, 3000 BC were doing, so you kind of end up with similar solutions in the physical landscape? Exactly. Even though we think of humans as being endlessly creative, we seem to come along with the same kinds of solutions, regardless of whether we're in a jungle zone or on the confluence of a river or on a lakeshore. The way that cities get configured to serve large numbers of people do look the same in just about every place. So you said that you're often in in modern cities, but where you can kind of feel the sort of the ancient city plan beneath. I mean, can you give any sort of examples of where you're kind of aware of those sort of multiple histories at any one time? Well, often we think of archaeological cities as being somehow dead or you know missing, but actually many of the modern cities that are quite successful have long-standing antecedents. London being a prime example, you know that we had earliest London Bridge was in the Roman period 2,000 years ago, and the vestiges of the Roman Wall that encircled the city are still very much a part of the modern city of London. But if you think of other global cities, you know, Paris, Tokyo, Kyoto, Delhi, Mexico City, those are all places that have had hundreds of years of occupation, and the underlying structures and even the infrastructure of pipes and conduits and drains and ditches have provided what my colleague Andrew Creekmore would would say are the bits of armature of the city, you know, that kind of skeleton that makes long-term urban survival possible. I'm sort of surprised that um, one city didn't make that list you just gave, which is Rome. Because Rome, I think more than anywhere else certainly I've ever been to, you are aware of ancient history. As, As I understand it, one of the reasons the Rome metro is not very extensive is because every time they start digging for anything, they find a half dozen pots and they have to stop and excavate and so on. And obviously, you know, the, the bits of the forum and so on are still there in the Colosseum. And so. is, is Rome a city you're familiar with? Can you kind of see these things there, really? You're right that Rome is a fabulous example of a city that not only has a long archaeological history, but that wears that history remarkably well so that you have ancient buildings that are interwoven with more contemporary constructions. And it all fits together and forms this living palimpsest of the past that goes on into the present. But your comment about the difficulties of excavation In terms of modern construction, we're always running into those layers underneath. That's true not only of Rome, but also of Athens, as they discovered when they expanded their subway. It's true of Mexico City. It's even true of places like Los Angeles, which, even though it's a relatively new city, does have an archaeological record of an early Chinatown and early Latino communities. So practically every city in the world, no matter how new, still has some kind of underlying archaeological past. Mm, 
when they were excavating the the route of Crossrail, which is a big rail project that's that's now running late under London, one of the things they dug out was a plague pit, which is quite exciting and uh, terrifying when you think of what might emerge from something like that. But uh, it does seem to be a fairly a fairly universal phenomenon. If we kind of go back to the beginning a little bit, I mean, actually, that's a good question. Why six thousand years? Because, as I, maybe I'm wrong about this, but as I understand it, although, you know, history in terms of the record of history probably only goes back about 5,000 years before you get to the point where there's no writing to speak of. But as I understand it, urban civilization in some form that has not left a record was rather, rather older than that. So how did you settle on that figure? So actually, that's not a figure that comes out of just one project, but many, many of my colleagues' archaeological projects over time. And what we've seen is that prior to about 6,000 years ago, what we have is a world of villages. And these were small habitations, maybe around 50 or 60 people, in which there were very few opportunities for people to engage with strangers or to have any kind of communal gathering. The only way that people got to know other people on a larger scale was through ritual activities. So they might congregate at a place like Stonehenge, for example, where they would have a few days of feasting and celebration and ritual. And then after that, you were supposed to go home. But of course, there were people who engaged in trade in those temporary places and who enjoyed that atmosphere of spectacle and entertainment and ritual and economics and entrepreneurship. And after a while, the idea of being in a place long enough to make it permanent was what made cities possible. And that period of time around 6,000 years ago is one that is actually archaeologically a little difficult to find because many of the longest-lived cities had early antecedents that are now buried under meters and meters of archaeological deposits. So there are very few places where we have plumbed all the way down to the bottom But of all of those places, the earliest ones seem to be in Mesopotamia, which already had a long tradition of agriculture and domestication, which would then provide the grain and the animal products to make cities viable. So what happens about 4000 BC in places like Mesopotamia, and maybe Egypt is the only other place I can think of that might be at all similar, but what, what happens to kind of shift parts of humanity from this kind of like village-based early farming life to something that starts to look a bit more urban? So it's really a combination of opportunity and in some case risk-taking. So I'll tell you a little story about the way we used to think about Mesopotamia, which is that in school we learned about it as the fertile crescent, as a place of abundance that was then the natural home of the first cities. And gradually over time, archaeologists have recognized that it is a rather difficult place to live. So all of my colleagues who have worked in the area of the ancient Near East, so that's Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, have talked about how hot it is. I have also had this experience working on the... Turkish border uh, just north of Syria a number of years ago, where the project director said that it was so hot that any decision you make after 10 o'clock in the morning is not a good decision. And yet this is where the first cities started up. And it was the late Tony Wilkinson who came up with what I think is a brilliant way of understanding the circumstances of early cities, because he said that we should not call it the fertile crescent, we should call it the fragile crescent. 
because there's frequently drought. People often lose their herds of animals. So it's a risk-taking place. And I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about how cities often come up in locales that are difficult, but that have some potential that enables people to gamble and take a risk of being there. So if we think about modern cities often being located in areas that flood, so that's a risk. But it also comes with opportunities of trade and interaction that enable people to make the calculated judgment that with the risk, there comes some reward. Sticking with Mesopotamia, I mean, do you have a sense of what the rewards were in a place like the Fertile Crescent? You know, why, why was it that this was a good place to start sort of shifting the mode in which humanity lived? So there's a lot of trade activity that goes on. If you are a person in the countryside who has lost everything because of a drought, there is somebody else in the vicinity who's had a bumper harvest. And a city is where those various types of risk management can intersect so that you have people coming in to take advantage of the opportunities. And it's also because there was not just one first city in Mesopotamia, there were many. And cities seem to grow up in networks of other cities. They are not isolated. So it's not just that you had one initial city like Tel Brak in the north of Syria, in the north of Mesopotamia, and then you had Uruk in the southern part of Mesopotamia, but you had other cities that were all coming up at exactly the same time. In a way, it almost sounds a little bit like a Ponzi scheme that people come into cities to manage risk, but then they also encourage other people to come in. And it's the fact of all of those people coming in and engaging in those economic opportunities that makes the city come into existence and survive, despite all wisdom to the contrary, because cities are crowded, they can be dangerous, they're dirty, they have pollution problems, they have waste stream management problems, there's trash. But despite all of that, even ancient folks found it worth giving it a try. So is there a sort of form of contagion here, where like if an area sort of starts producing cities, then because, you know, people might sort of decide that they, they don't like the person running this city, but they kind of like the urban lifestyle, so they stay in the network of trade and set up 30 miles down the road or something. Is it that kind of dynamic? And that's how you see sort of like civilization spread, as it were? In a way, yes, because as you say, this idea of moving from one city to the next is something that we certainly see today as well. Once a person is an urban dweller, they tend to move to another city by preference rather than moving back out into the countryside. But you can't really say that the reason we have urbanism globally now is that it was invented once and then sequentially spread to all other places because urbanism is difficult. City life is difficult. So it's not something that might be possibly viewed as advantageous unless you already had the support system of the surrounding hinterlands. And I think the ultimate test of that is the fact that you have cities in the New World in places like Mexico and Central America and in South America that never had any encounter with the cities of the Old World, not with Mesopotamia or Egypt or China or the Indus realm. They developed cities completely independently and yet those cities look exactly the same as the ones on the other side of the planet. So what are the forces that are sort of driving those kind of questions of urban design that mean that cities do tend to look the same even if they grow up independently? 
So there are a number of things that ancient cities shared that we can also recognize in our own modern urban spaces. You have monumental architecture, which can be practical, but can also be symbolic, like ritual architecture. You have broad streets and avenues. You have places where wealthy people live and the not-so-wealthy people live. You have places of manufacturing. You have places of commerce, like markets. And you also have large, empty spaces. And empty spaces like plazas or squares, you can think of places like Trafalgar Square or Tahrir Square, are places that are often a little bit overlooked in our understanding of cities, but I think they're really critical because those spaces can be repurposed instantly. Whereas architecture is something that needs work to repurpose, an empty space can be a parade ground, it can be a festival ground, it can be a market ground, it can be a soccer ground, um, or it can be a riot ground in very close sequential order. So those kinds of empty spaces provide opportunities for a kind of new thinking or public reactions to take place very quickly, whereas some of the more incremental spaces are things that evolve over time. But they do still evolve. That's the amazing thing about cities. They're always under construction. They are never finished. Even cities that you would think have no room for growth, a place like Manhattan or a place like London, you look around, there are cranes everywhere, there is scaffolding everywhere, there is always this process of renovation. On the point about empty space, I think a thing we tend to do these days is we kind of draw a hard line in our minds between the city and something else. Is that always how it's worked? Or or is there an argument that sort of if you kind of think of it as a system, then actually like the sort of hinterland, the rural area, the farms around these ancient cities were also sort of dependent on them and kind of the same thing, even if they look very different? In some cases, they look quite similar, and here's where archaeology is still playing catch-up to our theories about how ancient urbanism worked, because most of our excavations and investigations have taken place in the heart of cities. We have rarely had the resources, technological or otherwise, to look in those outlying areas that are the essential providers of urban labor, of urban food, and so on. But there have been some new techniques, including airborne LIDAR, which is a kind of radar scanning that enables us to look through heavily vegetated areas to see the spread of human constructions. And that's been particularly revolutionary in the Maya region of southern Mexico and Central America, where we used to think that the cities were empty ceremonial spaces because all we could see were the temples. And now with this airborne LIDAR, we can see that there are tens of square kilometers of outlying areas, suburbs with their own small temples, farmsteads, houses, and long-distance causeways that were used to transport goods by foot. That's fascinating, because you kind of think of the suburb as a sort of, you know, product of the Industrial Revolution, really. But you're saying that, like, the notion actually goes back much further than that. Indeed. And in places like China, for example, where you have these very large cities, so you have, for example, the city of Lindsay, which in the 4th and 3rd centuries BC was perhaps the largest urban area anywhere in the world. And it's about 20 square kilometers. But as people keep looking, they find those extended outlying settlements that are all being drawn into the urban orbit. So if you think about 
urbanism as a network of places, whether in Mesopotamia or anywhere else, we should remember that the network also has interstices of smaller population centers like towns and villages. And you mentioned the sort of longevity of a lot of these cities and really touched on Rome. Like, How many of these really very ancient cities where we're talking about, you know, as far back as the Roman Empire and then twice as far again. It's a long time into, into history. Are there any of those that are still like, are the, the now underneath sort of actually existing modern cities that people might have heard of? Oh, yes. If you think about Istanbul or Baghdad or Cairo, Rome and Athens, as we mentioned before, but also Lyon, Paris, Mexico City, Cusco, so many places, Merida, Guatemala City, I mean, so many of the world's cities are in places that have long-term historical antecedents, you know, right underfoot. I seem to remember, I think it might have been Jeffrey West who, who made the point, it's very difficult to kill a city, like businesses tend to die eventually, like they seem to have a natural lifespan. And so in some ways, so like empires or nation states were probably sometime are going to go the same way. But cities do tend to endure, don't they? Is there a, re- is there a reason why, you know, a site that was a good place 6,000 years ago will still be somewhere people want to live today? Or is it just that the geographical factors that push people towards it will, will still apply, really? In part, it is that the geographical factors still apply. So if you walk across the Thames today, you can see that the tides still affect London. Uh, Mother Nature is still there. And other parts of the world that perhaps should have long since ceased to exist, like New Orleans in the Americas, where we get frequent hurricanes, they get bailed out by the nation state. But it's the city that goes on and on and on, regardless of the nations that they're in. You can certainly see this in Europe, where we've had over the last thousand years, the map of Europe has been redrawn quite dramatically a number of times. And yet those cities go on and on in their longevity. So it's not surprising that a city could withstand numerous changes of nation state, because when it comes down to it, it's the actions of everyday ordinary people who vote with their feet, who make the city what it is. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so let's talk about infrastructure. That's fairly, I mean, apart from the fact this is the sort of podcast where people go wild for infrastructure, to be honest, it's kind of our thing. How does that change over history like is it the same kind of stuff you will see generation after generation century after century or or is it a thing that has changed radically down the years we have certainly improved in the modern world the capacity to deal with infrastructure not so much in terms of roads because many roman roads are underlying modern ones so they had the road network down pretty well what we do better now is in terms of safe water provisioning in cities and also sewage management and so infrastructure becomes a kind of invisible component of urbanism that is only put in place when you have governance that works to to make these infrastructural investments possible. So there is a role for government, even though we say that people walk into cities and migrate one by one, what they do is they depend on that kind of urban armature of streets and conduits in order to be able to live successfully in the city. So infrastructure is a matter of keeping things going, but it's also a matter of social justice because the provisions of new rail lines, as you're experiencing here in the UK, or the location of new metro stations are things that then serve to condition the surrounding neighborhoods and affect everything from affordable housing to provisioning to schooling and everything else. So infrastructure is a critical component of what makes a city even more livable. I mean, something I was thinking about during this conversation is that, you know, cities are kind of bound up with the start of what we think of as civilization. Like the word, you know, civic and the word civilization literally have the same the same root. Is this the reason why that to kind of to build the infrastructure that make urban life possible, you sort of need government structures so these things happen at once? Exactly. And there's another very important component of urbanism that is worth talking about because it has an archaeological antecedent. And that is that when cities come into existence, they sponsor and are fostered by the middle class. And when we think about the middle class, we think about educated people who have a little extra wherewithal, who have slightly better jobs, usually due to some kind of credentialed salaried employment, of which there was none in the rural countryside before cities. So you didn't need middle managers in the countryside, and you didn't need writing in the countryside, and you didn't need accountants, and you didn't need quality control managers. We didn't need any of those kinds of things. But when cities came into existence with their larger and faster realms of production and consumption, suddenly you needed that managerial class. And so cities and the middle class emerged and co-developed. You had then a group of people who could consume large varieties of things. You had markets to supply them. And what we see today all around the world is the growth of the middle class in cities where they have access to employment, but also access to consumption possibilities. It's the sort of surplus, isn't it? It's like to, to have a middle class, you sort of need some people who are not subsistence farming the whole time. And is that the thing that is made possible by urban civilization? 
It's made possible by urban civilization, but that urban quality of consumption, what you could call bling, is not something that is just allocated to the middle class. You also see people who are in lower income brackets choosing one or two categories, whether it's fashion or cosmetics or hairstyles or some other aspect of wearable consumption often, that they use to demonstrate their access to the city, that they are fully urbanite even if their income is a bit lower. And if you're walking past people on the street, and you don't know where it is that they live, it can sometimes be very difficult to tell a person who is uh, of means, a person who is not of means, or a person on borrowed means, because there is a kind of urban ethos that permeates that entire community from top to bottom. I suppose it's that point about contagion again, isn't it? It's, well, you know, for there to be trends or fashions or whatever, you need people to be able to see what everyone else is, is doing and get envious or respond to it in some way. Exactly. And what we can see archaeologically is that's often expressed in very cheap material goods. So a kind of fancy pottery, which is inexpensive to produce, but looks nice and is on everybody's table, or particular kinds of ornaments that can be had either in the genuine variety of stone or gold, or then, you know, in a, in a cheap pottery knockoff that then looks exactly the same as the real thing. So there's obviously um, a lot of research that's gone into this book, both academic and, and firsthand. What, what are some of the sort of favorite things you found out? What, what are the most interesting facts you've kind of unearthed? So as an archaeologist, I'm very fortunate because I can actually put my hands on the past you know, before things get into museum cases. They might come out of the ground. And yet one of my favorite finds is not something you could really put in a museum case. It comes from when I was excavating with my colleague and our Indian team at the site of Shishapalgar, and we were looking at the city wall that was constructed 2,000 years ago. And in order to be able to do that, we were taking apart part of the wall to look at its construction technique. And there was a place where, in lifting up the bricks, we saw in the mud mortar the traces of a worker's fingerprints where they had put the mortar in between courses of bricks. And it was that little momentary ancient action, you know, just a second or two before the next brick got sandwiched on top. And it really felt like I was almost transported to the past because here was a kind of ordinary action by an ordinary person that had just stood there for 2,000 years until the moment we recovered it. That's incredible, just like the idea of like, you know, someone who probably didn't think about that again for the rest of their day, their fingerprints are being uncovered thousands and thousands of years later. And I think it's a nice way of recognizing the the value of all the different contributions that one gets in a city, not only the high-end managerial jobs, but all of the other kinds of jobs in food service and transportation and delivery and maintenance, all those things that we depend on as city dwellers, we really all depend on each other to make cities work. And I suppose it's also like we don't tend to sort of get social history from the ancient world, do we? It tends to be the sort of the, it's, it's wars and empires and, and, you know, great men theories of history. We don't tend to hear so much about what, what daily life is actually like as, as would have been lived by most of the people there. So it must be interesting to actually be able to get those insights and touch that stuff. Exactly. To be able to excavate a little house or to be able to excavate a trash pit and find what it is that people threw away, it is amazing how much garbage there is <laughs> in ancient cities. So we Lucky feel if like, you're an archaeologist, there is, I suppose. That's right. That's right. You know, we think of ourselves as bad modern people with too much trash. But I can assure 
assure you that trash is not a 21st century problem. It is an urban condition. And in the past, people were making things like pottery containers faster than they could throw them away. I mean, it was just, it's as though there was a tremendous amount and variety of consumption, things that we would recognize from our own time that are also preserved in these vast waste dumps of the archaeological record. And you know, going back to thinking about Rome, what I talk about in the book is that one of my favorite places in Rome is not one of these bits of grand architecture, but it's a place called Monte Testaccio, and it's right on the Tiber where the boats used to come in. And Monte Testaccio is an artificial hill made up of discarded ceramic containers from the olive oil and wine trade. And so it has become part of the topography of the city, just like many of our own waste dumps become the topographies of our own cities. So if people listening wanted to go and sort of explore an ancient city and actually kind of see some of this stuff firsthand, where should they go? You know, the first thing you can do is to walk out on the streets of any city in the world and you can read a kind of archaeology by looking at what is on the sidewalk and what is on the architecture. You can see along the sidewalk all kinds of little cuts where something used to be and then it was replaced. You can see things like those raised bump kinds of markers for people with blindness to be able to navigate their way around the city. Sometimes you can see those cut by sequences of then manhole covers that are being made to go down into the infrastructure for repairs. You can see places where there used to be newspaper boxes and now there aren't there anymore, but the bolts are still in the sidewalk. So every city is constantly updating and upgrading itself. You don't have to go to a foreign place or a deserted, dusty land to be an archaeologist. You can be an archaeologist in your very own city. Okay, and if someone wanted to explore some of these issues, but from the comfort of their own home, where can they get your book? Well, the book is published in the UK by Simon & Schuster, and it's wherever books are sold. Thank you. And it's called Cities, the First 6,000 Years. Monica, thank you. Thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show. And I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.